once a month. We chat with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, for a philosophical view on the biggest news stories of the month. And today we are going to talk about politics, being a political pawn, and what that says about our humanity. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. You know, the crisp evenings, perfect for curling up with a flossy book and to have these kinds of discussions. A couple of big stories are happening right now that uh, on their face don't seem to have a lot of in common, but there is an underlying thread of how we treat people, uh, specifically how politicians are treating people. And that is one story in North Dakota, a very unfortunate death where a young man was run over. And then the person is saying because he was a Republican. And then we have this crisis going on where we have um, a couple of dozen refugees and migrants from mostly from Venezuela who were told they were in the U.S. legally they were going to be found jobs they were being sent uh, to Boston but then it was found out that they were actually being sent to Martha's Vineyard and on the dime of uh, Florida taxpayers so how are we going to put those two together we're going to talk about what it means to be a political pawn So, Jack, let's start with the big story out of Venezuela. Am I even correct in calling those people political pawns? Well, actually, I want to back up for just a second, and I apologize for that, because even before we start talking about people being pawns in the political context, I think we have to remind ourselves about how flawed human knowledge and communication is, right? There are two things that are going on here. People are being politically myopic. They're only focusing on the thing that interests them. And there's this big game of telephone going on. So we're talking about one thing and then it gets altered and it gets altered. So when you described the situation in North Dakota here, what you said was that the person who hit the young man and killed him, said he was a Republican. But of course, he didn't say that. What he said was that he was a right-wing extremist. Now, the news took that, reported it, of which the North Dakota State Police say that there's actually no evidence that it's true. So even beyond that, there's a question. But then people started reacting to it, started equating the term right-wing extremist first with MAGA Republicans and then with Republicans in general. So already the story has a very, very different political appeal if someone is killed for being a right-wing extremist. I'm not saying that's what happened and I'm not saying it's good, but if someone was killed for being a right-wing extremist, that's very different than someone being killed for being a Republican. And That's not your fault. You didn't make the mistake. This is what happens when political stories snowball out of people's interest because what they want to do is they want to use the tragedy for their own political gain. They want to use the tragedy for political argument. They want to use the tragedy to win the fights. And if that's your goal, then the facts of the matter It's not even that they're irrelevant. It's that they become so distorted you're engaging in a fiction rather than a conversation about the real world. Okay. So I guess we'll go down that vein a little bit before going back on theme. 
what responsibility do journalists have in trying to tell that story as accurately as possible while also competing with people's attention spans and the vast amount of competition there is for that attention? That's a huge problem in a market-driven society, right? We, we, you know, when, when I was growing up, there were a handful of local newspapers, there were four TV channels, and you knew all the networks were about the same, and then you had public television, which was more in-depth. And that was pretty much the landscape. Now we have blogs, we have a thousand cable channels, we have YouTube channels, we have all these different things. The tension between telling the truth and presenting a perspective has always been present in the United States. If you read the colonial newspapers and if you read the the, the commentary on presidential races and things like that, I mean, it puts some of our abuse to shame. I mean, it is incredibly graphic. It is incredibly uh, poetic. It's It's aggressive in a way that even we would find shocking in certain times. And then over time, there was this notion of that developed of journalistic integrity. And this notion that a journalist is supposed to tell the truth. We divided newspapers, we divided television into news stories and commentary. And that division was incredibly important because a newscaster could have an opinion, a channel could have a perspective, a newspaper could share a sort of point of view, but we always knew when one was talking from an objective or as objective as possible perspective and one was talking from their own political attitudes. That has disappeared again. And so the question that we have to ask is, how do we balance integrity with money making? How do we balance the, the moral principles of rightness, of fairness, of truth with the need to make a profit? And this is something that we see every single day. We see this how cashiers treat customers. We see this in, in how we decide to tip. We see this in, in whether or not we're doing the jo our job to the fullest extent that we can and this whole discussion of quitting and what time is your own. So as is always the case, these ethical questions are not unique to the circumstance. And so I would ask a person in general, what is your view on the importance of truth? And is your goal to express your point of view or is your goal to be fair to the full extent of the options and be informed before you make a decision? The answer to that is not going to be as obvious as you think. I think a lot of people you know you'll think they say one when they actually say the other. Hmm. It's interesting in the coverage of this story how certain media outlets are presenting this as uh, Florida Governor DeSantis just trying to make political theater out of these migrants and just saying, you know, this is because he might want to be running for president and he's just flying these people out of Florida. And then other news outlets are you can get more of a sense of he's bringing attention to this crisis, but also using Florida taxpayer dollars to fund this trip to Martha's Vineyard and saying, well, hey, this is what liberals say that they want, which is, you know, these sanctuary cities here now 
stand up for what you say you are doing. I'm just curious if you have what your opinion is on how you can read this story from two different outlets and come away with very different perceptions of this reality. So one of the things that happens is that we decide in the narrative whose story to tell. And in both of those examples, we're telling DeSantis's story. DeSantis wants to run for president. DeSantis mm-hmm. wants to advocate for a position. DeSantis wants to call attention to a crisis. But what's missing there is the perspective of the people who were the pawns of the Venezuelans. So let me just very briefly remind everyone of the context. Venezuela has an authoritarian regime and their economy has collapsed. People have no access to money, uh, no access to food, uh, massive outmigration, violence, prostitution. I mean, all the horrible things that, that, that happen in a country when it's completely falling apart. And it is horrendous and nightmarish. Instead of saying, instead of saying, thousands and thousands of people have decided to leave. But they can't just go to the the neighboring country. So what they do is they walk and they walk and they walk and they walk months and months and months, 2,700 miles from the Venezuelan border to the Texas border. Now, think about that for a second. That's the entire width of the United States. They don't have cars. They don't have possessions. They have only the things that are on their back. They walk through country after country that doesn't want them. They face violence, uh, threat, starvation, weather, all of these things. And after all of that, they come to America and they get to the Texas border. And they're met by the border guards and they're brought in legally because they're asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. They're put into the system and the the system says, OK, it's going to take us a while to, to process you. Everyone is going to have an individual decision as to whether or not you will be allowed to stay in, in the country. But until we make that decision, we're going to let you stay legally. We have your name. We have we have your picture. We have your fingerprints. We have all these things. You're going to stay and you promise to come to the the hearing when it happens in four months and six months and a year, whatever. Those people who walk 2,700 miles, who don't speak English, who have nothing of their own except perhaps the family that they're with, are given Spanish pamphlets and promised jobs and food and put on a bus and sent another thousand miles away to a place where they have no one, where they have no shelter, where they have no... uh, opportunities and dropped off a bus, often separating parents from children and spouse from spouse. Now, is that circumstance more important to have empathy with than DeSantis wanting to to be president or DeSantis wanting to call an issue? The very person that we decide to focus on in the story is the framework of the story. So yes, I think it's really important to ask about DeSantis's motives. And I think it's really important to talk about the politics of why the, why the Florida governor took people from Texas uh, and not from Florida. That's right. very, very important background information. But we are human beings. And the first human activity, the first thing that unites us is empathy. It's the ability to imagine the perspective of others and to ask what is going on there and how do we respect their humanity? The stories aren't doing that. 
Every time you focus on DeSantis and ignore the other people, you're missing, you're, you're burying the lead, which is desperate, scared, impoverished people walked through unbelievably circumstances and came to this country legally for a better life. Are those people we want as pawns? Same thing, go back to the North Dakota circumstance. The young man who was killed, he's 18 years old. He's got a future in, ahead of him. It's a small town. Everyone knows him. He knows everybody. Everything was on his on his plate. And I didn't know him personally, um, but I'm sure I know someone who knows him because it's North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And we're all fairly tight-knit. And he's dead. When the news, when the commentators, when the politicians focus on the intent of the murderer... They're burying the lead, which was the death of a real person and the brutality that it leaves in the family and the friends and the loved ones that this person had. I mean, there is nothing worse than a parent outliving their children. There's nothing worse. And no one's talking about that. And so if we're going to have the conversation about the political, whether it's moral to have, to use people as political pawns, I think it's more important to focus on the experience of the pawns than it is to focus on the political agents that, that are manipulating them. Yeah, I really, I don't even have a good question here, but just <laughs> sort of a statement of in each of these cases, these are humans, full stop. That's right. And that's, and that's, that full stop, right? That full stop is the hardest thing for us to do in a time of faction, in a time of fear, in a time of uncertainty. Because what we want to say is, yes, those people are humans, but, you know, yes, those humans are, are, are uh, those people are humans, but we have goals to achieve. Yes, those human beings, those people are human beings, but I really need to say what I need to say. Yes, those human, be those people are human beings, but he's the governor and he needs to do the things that he needs to do. All of that is true. But if you can't at the first point stop at the humans, if you can't do that full stop that you articulated, nothing else that follows can ever be moral because you've got 5% of the information and you need much more than that. No decision is perfect. No one's going to have 100% of the, uh, of, of, of the information. We're all subjective. We're all, we all make mistakes. But there's a difference between being so myopic, being so focused on the aspect that is abstract rather than the abstract that is the issue that is concrete and the issue that really causes people pain, that unless you recognize that, you can't make the moral decisions. Morality is built on information. And this is why when people talk, it, it classically, when people talk about moral virtues, they actually talk about wisdom as opposed to knowledge, mm. because wisdom is about making judgments based on the best information you have. Wisdom is about looking at certain circumstances and being able to apply lessons that you've learned from other situations to this. Just knowing something isn't enough. Just having gut intuitions isn't enough. To be wise, to be a virtuous moral leader, you have to be able to know how to gather the information and then balance it and interpret it through past experiences. And empathy allows us to grasp the, the past of all of the people involved and try to negotiate our moral decisions based on that.
do you think it's a kind of self-protection that we add all of those buts, all of those clauses, all of the everything you said after that full stop, almost in the sense that it's it's too overwhelming to process that level of pain that we add on all these sort of qualifiers to make it easier? That, that is not only one of the most beautiful questions you've ever asked, <laughs> that is also the core of my academic research. And, 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 and my last book on Adam Smith is exactly about this. It's about the way that we use our perspective to block off that empathy to self-protect. So here's the paradigmatic example that Adam Smith, who's a 18th century philosopher and the father of modern capitalism, this is the example that he uses. Slave owners or, you know, slave masters or enslavers, however you want to call it, worked incredibly hard to block out the humanity of the slaves. Yeah. They changed the interpretation of the Bible. They, would, they, they wouldn't read certain literature. There was no art expressing the pain of the slaves. All of the things, there, there were no plays. You know, it was 18th century, so there were no movies and all that kind of stuff. But there was no there was no creativity and no storytelling from the perspective of the slaves because if the slave owners took the perspective of the slaves, they'd have to hate themselves, right? They'd have to feel the pain because the pain of being a slave, even if you hold, I think, the profoundly wrong and immoral opinion that the slaves deserved to be slaves, even if they deserve it, it's still a horrendously awful experience to be a slave. And so the slave owners, uh, I hate that phrase, but there's there's no other way to do it. slave masters, whatever. Um, they had to block off the empathy of the slave, because if you enter the perspective of someone who's being whipped, who's being tortured, who's being taken from their family, who's being raped, whose kids are being taken from them, whose loved ones are being taken from them, then you have to engage in a kind of self-torture. And that's why, and funnily, this came up in an earlier conversation on philosophical currents, that's why the book Uncle Tom's Cabin was so important, because Uncle Tom's Cabin was the first mainstream book written by a white woman to describe the experience of the suffering of a slave. And it's an imperfect book and it's led to all sorts of controversies, but it underscores the power of empathy. And so imagine what would happen if one of these, you know, super uh, popular Netflix documentaries came out that shared the journey of the Venezuelan from the, from whatever city they're in to the Texas border, forgetting, forgetting about the DeSantis thing for a second just that journey over like three, four episodes in the way that that the Tiger King compelled us or, or, or some other document or Dahmer or something like that. Imagine how quickly attitudes would change just about the asylum seekers, right? Again, putting aside DeSantis. If we spend time using art, using literature, using news, using narrative to explore the experience of the pawns, all of a sudden, we're going to identify with them, and then we can ask the question. So the question that you asked is, is it self-protection? It is absolutely 100% self-protection. And it is also self-interest in the fact that if we're focused on the Venezuelans, we're not necessarily going to focus 
on our own issues, which is, you know, who we want for president or who's going to vote for, you know, who's going to represent us in terms of our opinion on health care or other things. And so no human being can be purely empathetic all of the time, even in the great enlightenment traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism. Even enlightenment happens only for an instant. So I, I don't think that it's realistic to think that everyone is going to do nothing but think about the Venezuelans and enter into their perspective or do nothing but think about the boy who died, although I'm sure that's what his parents are doing. Um, it's about recognizing that as a starting point and then developing your moral judgments from that background knowledge that that accurately reflects the humanness, full stop, of the people that we're talking about. What does it say about our humanity that we don't do that? So, <laughs> I mean, I, I wanted to offer a glib answer, and the glib answer with both positive and negative, right? It's It's what it says about our humanity is that we're human, right? What it says about humanity is that we're flawed and that we're imperfect, that we exist in, in time and space. But the fact of the matter is, is that the fundamental tension in the human experience, as far as I'm concerned, is that we are discrete physical creatures, right? Our bodies are ourselves and we stop there. But our experience is collective. Our experience is interactive. And what we don't spend enough time talking about, and again, this is my academic research and I could dive down a deep hole, so turn me off as soon as possible. But, um, but what we don't spend enough time talking about is the role of the moral imagination, is the way that our imagination enters into the perspective of others. That's what we teach kids, right? We do that naturally. We say, you should share your toy because you would want people to share their toy with you. You shouldn't hit someone because you wouldn't like it when someone hits you. This is what, what, what Jesus does and what many people do with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, right? treat others as you would like others to treat you. Now, as a heuristic, as a teaching tool, now as a heuristic, as a teaching tool for infants, for an immature human population, I think that's a really important tool. But I actually really dislike the golden rule. I don't think you should treat others as you would like others to treat you. I think you should treat others as they want to be treated. I think the goal is to find out how other people want us to treat them and do that. Because when we limit the decision from our perspective, we are being completely selfish and we're not assuming that other people have different experiences and different desires than us. But that requires imagination, that requires attention, that requires wisdom, that requires experience, that requires all of these things, and that's hard. So what the golden rule is, what this, this uh, the human experiences is overcoming our moral immaturity and our selfishness, both as individuals, as discrete creatures, and as a collective, and becoming better, more aware, and more interactive. Now, how well we have done that as a human species is a matter of debate. How well we do that as individuals is a matter of, you know, case by case basis. But we have had a lot of moral progress in human history. And, you know, I had a Steven Pinker on, on Y Radio many years ago, and I would encourage people to listen to the episode. It's called A Philosophy of Violence, which is sort of a misleading title. And 
he argues that 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 our society right now is the safest um, and in many ways the most moral period of time we've ever lived in. Now, that doesn't mean it's safe and it doesn't mean it's it's perfectly just, but we have improved a lot. But that humanness, that that having to start over with every person, that having to get past every crisis, that recognizing that when it's us and our children and our own needs, it it naturally eclipses other people. That's the human experience. And that's why art is so powerful. And that's why politics is so difficult. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg in conversation with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, the philosopher from the University of North Dakota, who joins us for Philosophical Currents. And today's theme is on political pawns and what that says about our humanity. And Jack, you know, my very first question to you, which you never <laughs> did answer, was, was are these people uh, political pawns, the, the migrants primarily from Venezuela? And I think we established in that first half that they really are so I'll, I'll change the focus a little to, is it ever okay to use people as political pawns? And I think this is where the empathy conversation can switch to our politicians, because our politicians are making decisions that affect everybody, and they have to be able to refer to day-to-day -day life, and they have to be able to talk about people's experiences. And so to talk about immigration, I mean, DeSantis has every right to talk about immigration. He has every right to run for president. He has every right to want to persuade people that he is a worthy leader. I have no problem with any of that. I think the general rule off the top of my head would be something along the lines of, if you are talking about people generally, it's okay. Or if you're sort of, uh, if you're making policies that affect people in general, it's okay. But when you isolate a specific group or you have to manipulate particular people, then you at least have to think twice about doing it. This is one of the basic uh, rules in philosophy of law. A law has to be both general in scope, right? It has to say people aren't allowed to cross against the red, not Ashley isn't allowed to cross against the red. And they have to be universal in scope, meaning they apply to everybody. Everyone has the same rules about crossing against the red. And... To take a group of people and say, we are going to give you false information and we are going to move you to another place where you have no resources, where you know anybody, it doesn't matter who that is. That's bad. And that's why some people are accusing DeSantis of human trafficking, because once you take a particular nameable specific group and treat them differently, you're violating what gets called procedural justice, you're violating the fact that the rules have to apply generally and universally to everybody. So I don't have a problem with treating the people of North Dakota like pawns in the sense that uh, a politician is going to say, look, North Dakotans have to balance the need for high quality of life with the need for um, extracting oil in the western part of the state or natural gas in the western part of the state. I don't have a problem with saying public school kids are having this experience and let's try to change their life in that way. But the moment you get particular groups, especially particular groups that don't have recourse, that don't have resources, that don't have a voice of their own, that goes over the line for manipulation. And I think 
there is, we can call it the principle of redress, but that's a fancy term of saying that whatever a politician does, whatever the government does, there has to be a way for the person to argue back, to have their perspective asserted, to have some sort of protection. And these people didn't, and they didn't have the place or the voice to do it. And that makes them much more vulnerable. And you don't take advantage of vulnerable people. Tying this back to the North Dakota story, Governor Burgum did tweet about uh, the death of Kaylor Ellingson. And, you know, he is saying he doesn't want to condone violence. And then there is just the, you know, the use of the word political in there. Um, But as you said, that other people have said, actually, there is no evidence that this person was a right-wing extremist. Um, should politicians be weighing in on an individual case? I think they can when there is a massive amount of evidence and other things to support it. So what happened with George Floyd, there was footage lots of footage and lots of witnesses and the conversation lasted a really long time as to whether or not the police officers were acting illegally and immorally in this instance there's no evidence in this instance it's one person's word who who, who has to protect himself and in this instance it's it was it was some kid who had a private interaction with someone else and that another person killed him. And we weren't violating George Floyd's privacy. We weren't violating George Floyd's family's privacy because it was all out there. But every time we talk about this young man in North Dakota, and I'm not going to use his name, every time we talk about this young man in North Dakota, we're taking a private, horrible, horrible incident and we're making it as public as humanly possible. And then we're having talking head after talking head and politician after politician shout about it at speeches for applause. And that's just ugly. And that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And so I think there are times when it's really important for politicians to take a stand on individual cases. And I think there are times when they should walk away. And that has a lot to do with whether or not talking about it makes it makes the people more public and more vulnerable and mm. gives them more pain or whether it's in the service of justice and healing. And I know there's a huge argument about this, but at least the Black Lives Matter folks think they were participating in a discussion of justice, think they were they were putting something on the table for, for healing. And I don't see anyone talking about that in, in, in the case in North Dakota, other than the folks on the Internet who have been said over and over again, we're from North Dakota, leave us alone. We're from North Dakota, we'll handle this ourselves. And that's been really powerful in terms of the community of the state, because we have decided as a state, you know what, we're going to protect these people. This is none of your business this is a family matter. Let us let us deal with it ourselves. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota for this month's Philosophical Currents. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I wish the topic were a little more lighthearted and fun.